study tonight Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 to 24. And let's begin at Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Genesis 3, 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And Adam said, I heard thy sound in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, uh, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled or seduced me, and I did eat. Now we're studying Genesis chapter 3. We're studying, as a matter of fact, the book of Genesis. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we have the uh, creation of the world and man. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to 25, we have the second thing in the book of Genesis, and that is man's original state. Now in Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man. The fall of man means the fall of man from a state of integrity into a state of sin. Theology speaks of this as the fall of man. And when the Bible, when theology speaks of the fall of man, it means the fall of man from a state of erectness, spiritual erectness, from a state of sin, from a, from a state of integrity, from a state of perfection into a state of sin. And Genesis chapter 3 records that fall. Now, last time we took there seven points in this chapter. You see them on your outline? Temptation, degeneration, confrontation, condemnation, reaction, preparation, and prosecution. Now, last time we took up the first two. Last time we took up the temptation of Eve by the devil. And we saw last time, uh, and what I hope was profitable, the um, three steps that the devil uses in approaching us and getting us to fall into sin. First, he sows a doubt. Then when he gets us on that hook, secondly, he states an outright Denial of God's word. You will not die. And then third, he distorts God's character. And then we studied last, last time degeneration. And that's given to us in verse 6 and 7. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin. Uh, and we saw the five steps that Eve took in falling into sin. Now the question sometimes arises, at what point did Eve sin? Well, may I say to you, she did not sin when she took the fruit. She sinned before that. Precisely at what point Eve sinned, uh, we may have a difficult time um, discovering. But we know that she did not fall into sin when she took the fruit of the tree. Sin takes place when the will consents to it. Sin takes place when the will consents to it. And Eve consented to this thing in her will and in her mind long before, before she took of the fruit. And so sin took place somewhere back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And uh, you notice um, um, that um, her fall into sin and Adam's fall into sin is evidenced uh, immediately. And it's evidenced by three things. And we suggested it last time. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did when they, after they sinned? What was the first thing? They hid from God. What was the second thing? Sold fig leaves together. And the third thing? Began to rationalize their failure. They, um, they made fig leaves. That's an evidence of shame. They hid from God. That's an evidence of fear. And then they started making excuses and justifying themselves. And, of course, that's an act of self-justification. Now let's come to the third thing in this chapter. Confrontation. Verses 8 to 13. Here's the inquest. 
Here is the raiment of Adam and Eve by God. Man is lost, but he's not deserted. And God moves in to save him. But before God can save him, um, God must uh, um, make Adam acknowledge his lost estate. God always does that. See, in all true preaching of the gospel, there's always two revelations. There's the revelation of the sinner to himself and the revelation of Christ to the sinner. There are always two revelations, a self-revelation and a divine revelation. There's always the revelation of the sinner to himself and then the revelation of Christ to the sinner. And until a man sees the first, he'll not embrace the second. Uh, Sir James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform, was asked one time, Sir James, what is the greatest discovery you ever made? And I've used this many times on the radio. And some of you perhaps have heard this. I think it's a very perceptive statement. Sir James Simpson was a great scientist. He was the man that discovered the anesthetic properties of chloroform. We don't use chloroform much today. But 30 years ago they did. Sir James Simpson was a discoverer, among other things, of the anesthetic properties of chloroform. He was also a great, he was also a very dedicated and knowledgeable Christian. One day, Sir James Simpson was asked, Sir James, what is the greatest discovery you ever made? Without any hesitation whatsoever, Sir James replied, the greatest discovery I ever made was when I discovered I was a great sinner and Jesus Christ was a great Savior. And no man will make the second until he makes the first. And, and, and before God shows me Christ, he shows me myself. Because until I lose all hope, in myself, I'll never want Jesus Christ. So God brought Adam out into the open, stood him up in front of the mirror, and stripped him of all excuses and all rationalizations for his failure, let him stand naked spiritually before himself. And then Adam was ready for that great promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now I want you to notice in these five verses two things. I want you to notice, first of all, three attempts of Adam and Eve to escape God's judgment. And the reason I want to underscore them is because they're so modern. There are three attempts of Adam and Eve here in these five, six verses to escape the judgment of God. Now, what are those three attempts? I'd like to elicit those from you. The first one is in verse um, 8. What's the first attempt? Hit himself, hit himself. The second one is in verse 6, uh, verse 7. He tried, he covered himself, attempted to cover himself. And the third one is found in verses uh, um, ten, about verse 9, 10, 11, 12. He began to make excuses. All right, let's look at these. Three attempts of Adam and Eve to, uh, to, uh, uh, to escape the judgment of God. First of all, he, um, he uh, attempted to hide himself. He got behind the tree. How ludicrous to think that God... Uh, he could hide himself from God behind a tree. As St. Augustine said hundreds of years ago, Adam was not lost to God. When God said, and I anticipate myself here, when God said, Adam, where art thou? He didn't ask that question because Adam was lost to God's knowledge, but to God's fellowship. Adam, look where you are now. First thing Adam tried to do was to hide himself. So he got behind the tree to escape the judgment of God. That didn't work. God found him. Second thing he tried to do, or really the first thing, he covered himself, attempted to hide his nakedness by sewing together a cover of fig leaves. And then the third attempt that he uh, made in order to um, escape the judgment of God is he started to make excuses, began rationalizing. Um, are you, um, why did you hide? Because I'm naked. Uh, who told you you were naked? Have you disobeyed? Well, I ate of the fruit of the tree. How come? The woman whom thou gavest to me. Now, when Adam said it, he didn't say, the woman whom thou gavest to me. See? Now, as much as the men might like to say that, that's not what he said. He didn't say, the woman whom thou gavest to me. He said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. 
See, what Adam did was, to, was something very modern. He tried, to blame his, he tried to blame God because God gave him, he said, the woman. You gave me my environment. You gave me my circumstances. You gave me my heredity. And therefore, you're responsible for my failure. Or as Omer Kayon said, O thou who was pitfallen with gin, did beset the path I was to wander in. A pitfall and a gin are little traps for birds. When Omer Kion said that, O thou, speaking of God with a capital T, O thou, O thou, and the Rubiot, O thou, God, who with pitfall and with gin, with little traps, did beset the path I was to wander in. See? What do you mean by that? If I've fallen, you're responsible. You put me on this path, and you're responsible. And all the modern tendencies of modern psychology and sociology to blame environment and heredity and circumstances go right back to this. I happen to be dealing with this in the radio message for next Sunday. Now, there surely is a place for circumstances and environment and heredity. The Old Testament says, like father, like son. That means that the father is going to inevitably, inevitably influence his son. And you can look at a son often and tell what the father or the mother was like. Because indelible impressions are made upon a son or daughter by the parents. But that's not determinative. Alongside and even more than that, there's a will. And the will is free to act in accordance with its nature. And a man has the freedom to respond or not to respond. And God didn't let Adam off the hook in this thing. Three attempts to escape God. What was the first one? Hide from God. You know what modern man does? He tries to hide from God. But instead of getting behind a tree, he gets behind alcohol or drugs or sex or education, to hide from God and to blot out that guilt. What else does he do? Not only try to hide from God, but to cover himself. But instead of a covering of fig leaves, he is the covering of self-righteousness, church membership, or baptism, or a good life. But God strips us of human righteousness. And then third, he tries to make excuses. I couldn't help it, see? I couldn't help it. Man falls, Christian man falls into adultery. What's his excuse? My wife didn't love me as she should. Well, that may be true, and if, and if it's true, it's wrong, but that'll never stand up as an excuse, see? God never lets us get off on the grounds of environment or circumstances. God says to you and to me, as he did to, as Nathan said to David, thou art man. Before God uh, saves Adam, he's going to have to destroy all these attempts of Adam to escape the judgment of God. Now, another thing I want, second thing I want you to look at these verses are the steps God uses to, uh, to bring Adam to himself. God, the steps God uses to bring Adam to himself and their form. And I dare say that these are four steps that God uses in dealing with every sinner. Four steps that God uses. Do I, do I enumerate them there? Do I enumerate them there? All right, there are four steps God uses in bringing a sinner to himself. Four steps. First of all, he smokes him out, if I can use that term. <laughs> See? He smokes him out. That is, he makes... Adam come out of hiding and face himself. He makes Adam face himself. Where are you, Adam? Makes Adam face himself. I'm going to put these down, and then we're going to look at them. Second thing he does, uh, he makes Adam go to the root of the problem. See? Go to the root of the problem. That's the second thing. See, Adam, what's wrong with you, Adam? Adam said, well, I'm naked. No, says God, that's not your problem. 
Your problem is naked, not nakedness. That's a symptom. Your problem is disobedience to the will of God. Your problem is, is a violation of the law of God. You disobeyed me. What's your problem? My problem is whiskey. No, it's not. That's only a symptom. What's your problem? Drugs? No, it's not. That's only a, a symptom. This, these are symptoms. See, Adam was caught up in a very modern tendency. A modern tendency in sociology, modern tendency in psychology, and a modern tendency in the church. And that's the deal in symptoms. My problem is nakedness. No, said God, your problem is not nakedness. Your problem is you're disobedient to me. You violated my law. What's your problem? My problem is uh, I'm maladjusted. No, that's not your problem. My problem is I can't get along to people. No, that's a symptom. Your, my problem is whiskey. No, that's a symptom. My problem is drugs. Well, it is, but it's only a symptom of the deeper thing. Once this thing is dealt with, a right relationship to God, then these others are taken care of. Adam dealt with symptoms. God made him go down to the root of his problem. That's the second step. Now, and I meant to just state these and then get back and talk about them. I don't want anything left. What's the third thing he did? What's the third thing he did? Broke down all Adam's what? Excuses. An excuse, I remember learning this about 35 years ago. An excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true or not. Broke down all of his excuses, and when Adam stood naked before God and silent before God, then God finished by sentencing him. Sentencing him. See? And that's in verses 15, 16 to 19. When he's through, four steps God used. And I dare say, in, in dealing with all of us, God uses the same four steps. Now, he doesn't go step one, step two, step three, but he uses the same one. What's the first step? What is the first one? Smoked him out. He made Adam get out of hiding, made Adam face himself. Do you know that's a hard thing to do? That's a hard thing for a Christian to do, isn't it? The hardest thing for a Christian to do is to get up spiritually, morally, and look at the mirror, to take a good look at himself. That's a hard thing. That's what God did. He smoked him out. He's over there yonder hiding. God said, Adam, where art thou? He wasn't asking for information. In effect, God was saying, Adam, look where you are now. Look where you are now. Once you were unafraid of me, now you're afraid. Once you, you were not able to blush, now you blush. Once you were naked, not ashamed, now you're ashamed. Once you and your wife were in perfect harmony, now alienation has begun to come in to the marital relationship. Look where you are now. You thought the devil was going to give you something. You would be like me. The devil's going to give you something great, but look what you ended up with. Look where you are now. I remember reading years ago that the president, back in the early 1900 years, I think it was Dr. Scarborough, president of the South Western Baptist Theological Seminary, interviewed every prospective student to that seminary. And when he did, he'd bring the young fella into his office and sit him on down, talk with him, and then he'd get the Bible and ask him to read Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Ask him to read that one verse. He wanted to see how he could read it. Verse 9 says, The Lord God called on Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He asked him to read that verse, to see how he would read that verse. And that, according to the story, that gave him something of an index to his understanding of the Bible. See, this is a picture of what God is doing today, my friend. When God sought me out, what he did, my name was Adam, mine was Jim, see, and he kept after me with that question until he brought me to the end of myself, as he did Adam, and up against the wall and to the foot of the cross and saved me. And the first thing God does in saving a man 
is bring him to face himself. Now that has something to say about witnessing. First step that we need to take in bringing a man to faith in Christ is to make him face himself. The old principle, you know, that a man has, his surgeon has to be cruel to be kind. Had to be cruel to be kind. Well, in witnessing and in dealing with a man, often you have to be cruel to be kind. When that woman in John chapter 4 came to Jesus and attempted to get him into a theological argument, you know, where shall we worship? Jesus said to her, go call your husband. <laughs> that affronted her. See, that touched a raw chord. And she didn't like it. And she said very abruptly, she, up to this point she'd been saying, sir, sir, sir. At this point she dropped that sir. And said very abruptly, I have no husband. Now, Jesus could have been silent there, but he didn't. He probed thee. He was cruel to be kind. See? He said, to her, you speak right. You don't have any husband. You had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. And she broke down then. He had to be cruel to be kind. And the first step that God took with Adam was to bring him out to the open, smoked him out, make him face himself. The second thing, as I've already mentioned, is God went to the root of the problem. And this is so important in dealing with people. So important. Adam said, uh, uh, God said to Adam in verse, look at it, verse, uh, verse 10. Now look at verse 10. And, and Adam said, I heard thy voice. It's not voice, but S-O-U-N-D. I heard your sound in the garden. Apparently, God adopted a human form of some sort or some uh, visible form. And Adam said, I heard your sound in the garden. And I was afraid because I was what? Symptom. Not I was afraid because I disobeyed. I was afraid because I was what? Symptom. I was naked. See? And I hid myself. And God said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Then God gets down to the root. Have you eaten of the tree? Well, if I commanded thee, thou shouldst not eat. See, God got down to the root of the problem. And why, we you know, psychiatry and psychology can deal with symptoms, but only the gospel can deal with the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the man's guilt. Until a man deals with that issue of guilt, both objective and subjective, then the problem won't be dealt with. We speak both of objective guilt and subjective guilt. Objective guilt is my standing before God. Subjective guilt is my consciousness of that standing. Now, a man can dull subjective guilt. He can drink. He can get on drugs. He can get to the place where he dulls that subjective consciousness of guilt. But that doesn't erase objective guilt. Before God, he stands guilty. And to turn that around, a Christian can be genuinely saved. If he's a Christian, he's genuinely saved. And therefore, that guilt's been gone. But he can still carry around a load of guilt within himself because he never truly accepted what God has said about his spiritual condition. See? Now, Adam tried to deal with symptoms. And God was getting down to the root of the thing, which is that he was guilty before God because of his disobedience to the law of God. Have you eaten? That's your problem. What's your problem? You disobeyed. That's your problem. Not your nakedness. That's a symptom. Your real problem is you disobeyed. You may be here tonight, my friend. You may, 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 may not be a Christian. May I say to you, that until you deal with the root of the problem, which is your relationship to Jesus Christ, the symptom will never be dealt with. We say, I gave up drinking. Yeah, but a man gives up drinking, then he takes on something else. Say. Man gives up drinking, then he takes on pride. You remember that story about that Jesus told about a man having a demon, and he swept it out, but he left it vacant, empty. And what happened? Seven Words came in. So man may conquer one, he thinks he does, and another one comes in. And until I deal with the root issue, which is my relationship to God, 
and the problem of guilt than dealing with symptoms. We have no final ultimate value. Third thing God did, he stripped Adam of all his excuses and rationalizations, made his face his own culpability. Adam said, the woman, and whom thou gavest to be with me. God answered that when he sentenced Adam and um, made him face his own culpability. And I tell you, that's really important today. Um, we have what I call uh, in America today the pervasive and crippling environmentalist view of sin. May I repeat that? We have in America today what I call the pervasive and crippling environmentalist view of sin. An environmentalist view of sin means that I'm not really responsible for my actions. See? I'm not really responsible. That has a long history. Um, back in the 1920s when um, Clarence Darrell argued a case of Loeb and Leopold, he argued on the basis not that they were not guilty, but that they were not guilty. See? He acknowledged that these two young men had committed the crime, but, said Clarence Darrell, they're not really guilty. They're victims of their background and their environment and their home. And they couldn't help what they did. You remember the recent case in Florida of the young boy that was involved in television? No doubt watching television influenced him, see? No doubt influenced him. But he was guilty. Oh, here's a man that's picked up. He killed somebody when he was drinking. And he was under the influence of alcohol, whiskey. And he was almost dead drunk. And he ran into somebody and killed him. Is he guilty? Yes. Yeah. Well, he couldn't help himself. No, but he could help himself when he took that first drink. He's guilty. He's guilty. We've got in America today uh, an, a, a great flight from responsibility. And the Bible never allows it. And the first thing that God did was to push Adam up in the corner and said, You are the man. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. Or as Shakespeare said in one of his plays, The fault, dear Brutus, is not with our stars, but with us, that we are underlings. Here's the fault. Or as the old Negro spiritual said it so perceptively, it's not my father, nor my mother, nor my wife, <laughs> nor my husband, nor my parents, nor my children, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That's where the guilt lies. And until a man, may I say something, until a man or a woman, even as a Christian, is willing to face up to his own responsibility or his, her own responsibility, uh, they'll never make really any progress. I'm dealing uh, in this radio broadcast next Sunday, just happens to come to mind, I'm dealing with the whole question of what is involved in confession. A believer confesses his sins. What's involved in true confession? Well, I want you to listen next Sunday morning, so I won't tell you. But one thing that's involved is the acknowledgement of my own responsibility. When I confess to God, I, first of all, confession means to call it what God calls it. The word is homo lego. Lego means to say, and homo means the same thing as a homogenized milk or homosexual. Homo lego to say the same thing. I say the same thing that God says about that thing that I did. I lie. I say, oh, that's a weakness. No, God says, that's a sin. I stole. Oh, I say, that's, a, that's an inhibition. No, says God, that's not inhibition. That's a sin. Homosexuality, that's a personality defect. No, God says it's a sin. And in confession, I call it exactly what God calls it. A, a, a violation of the law of God. A willful disobedience to God's law. Second, any true confession involves acknowledging my own personal responsibility. I did it. Not my father, though he may have influenced me. Not my wife, though she may have influenced me. Not my husband, though he may have driven me along the line. But I did it. I was the one that did it. Die. You know, sometimes um, um, my boys will ask me, and I uh, got one here tonight, and 
they'll ask me, Dad, when does a, uh, when does a boy become a man? That's a hard problem to answer. <laughs> I've got five of them, and that's a hard problem to answer. But I can tell you two things. One is, when he's no longer putting his feet under that table, when he's paying his own way. And the second one is, you know what I mean? The second one is, the second one is, when he assumes responsibility for his failure. And there's some boys that are men at 15. You know what I mean? I did it. I'm responsible. I did it. And there's some men that are still boys at 45. See, because they're always looking around for somebody else. You know, some people get that habit. And they cultivate that habit of rationalization and scapegoatism, transferring blame, and they live it, and they go up to 80, 75, 80 years of age, and they never get out of it. And then they wonder why they have problems in the marital relationship, and problems in human relations, and problems in interpersonal relationships. One of them, the basic one, is assuming responsibility for my failures. Now, that's exceedingly difficult. But I'll tell you, 90% of confession, about 80%, is right there, see? And the other, the last one, is the willingness and the determination by God's grace to break the bad sin. And so, God brought Adam to the end of himself, to the acknowledgement of his own sin. You see, that was the greatness of, of David. And that was the smallness of Saul. The difference between Saul and David lies right here. When Samuel came to Saul and uh, said, why did you do this thing? Why did you offer this sacrifice? You remember what Saul said? Saul said, the people, the people asked me. The people, see, blaming circumstances. The people. When, Sa when David sinned, and God sent Nathan and told that little parable and, and uh, very judiciously told that little parable about the poor man, the rich man. Do you remember that story? poor man had one little ewe lamb. The rich man had large flocks. Visitor came to the home of the rich man. The rich man went out, stole that little ewe lamb, the only one the poor man had. And David, who was basically a just man, David's temper was rising. His blood began to boil. He'd like to knock that rich man flat, see. <laughs> and he was really, what he was doing is tightening the noose around his neck. And Nathan said, what ought to be done? He said, that man ought to pay fourfold. And you know, just at that time, while he was saying that, at the same time, it was coming into his consciousness that maybe he was the man. Nathan said, thou art the man. What did I gave you all you wanted. Instead of being satisfied, you stole another man's wife and sent him out to the front lines to die. And you know, David could give him all sorts of rationalizations, but he didn't. You know what he did? Fell on his knees and said, You're right, O God. In Psalm 51, against thee, and thee only have I sinned. He sinned with Bathsheba, but he sinned against God. And a man will never make any progress until he's willing to acknowledge his own personal responsibility. And a man has to be, a sinner has to be brought to that state. To be smoked out into the open, to deal, to, to, to move away all symptoms and get to the root of the problem, which is guilt. Guilt. His guiltiness before God. His bankruptcy before God. And then to destroy all rationalizations and excuses. Then the fourth thing God did was to sentence sin. And that's found in verses 14 to 19. All right, having made Adam conscious of his culpability. Culpability, that's a good word. Culpability, which means guiltiness. Having made Adam conscious of his culpability, his guiltiness, God now sentences him. And that's in number four, condemnation. And that's probably as far as we'll get tonight condemnation, and I'm glad that providentially we've been hindered to get beyond because I really wanted to take another evening on this. I think this is a great chapter. I think it's one of the great chapters in the Bible, and I do so because I think it, uh, not only because it tells us of the origin of sin, not only because it's the most important chapter.
chapter, humanly speaking, in all the Bible, not only because it records the most important event in human history apart from those events around the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, but because it teaches us uh, a great deal about God, the way God deals with us in saving the human soul. Now, let's look at the condemnation. Condemnation. Verses 14 to 19, and let's read these verses. Verse 14 and 15 through 19, The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. From thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, verse 14 is addressed to the instrument, and we spoke of that last week. There's both an agent and an instrument, and God addresses himself, so to speak, to the instrument, just as he had laid a curse upon the earth in verses 17, 18, and 19, so he lays a curse upon the serpent, though the serpent was involuntary. So God cursed the serpent. What form it took before this, we don't know. Now, in verse 15, he addresses the agent, and that's the devil himself. And he says, and I'll put enmity, God says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Then he turns to the woman, verse 16. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Then he turns to Adam, and unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also a thistle shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt thou return. Now let's look at this. Here's the judgment. Judgment on the Asian, uh, verse 15, and on the woman, verse 16, and on the man, verse 17, 18, 19. See, God moves from the uh, less responsible Satan to the most responsible, that is man. God first judges the less responsible in this event, Satan. Then he moves to Eve, who is more responsible than Satan, but less responsible than man. And he deals with her. And then he deals with the one who's, upon whose shoulders rests the prime responsibility, and that's man. Now let's look at the first one. Look at Satan. Read that once again. Verse 15. And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed, and he shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, we know that's dressed to Satan for many reasons, but turn over to Romans chapter 16. Let's confirm once again what, what we did last week and to, um, to make sure that we understand that the that the serpent here is the tool of Satan, the real tempter of Satan himself. And uh, let's turn, keep your finger in Romans 16 and turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And that great dragon was cast out, that ancient, the word old is ancient, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast out in the earth. There the serpent is identified as the devil and Satan. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse, uh, verse 2. Once again, he's identified. And he laid hold on the dragon, that ancient serpent was the devil and Satan bound him a thousand years. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 16. One more passage. You also could look, as we did last time, at 2 Corinthians 11, but we'll not look at that passage. Revelation chapter 16, verse 20. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Right. 
I said that to see if you were awake. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. A reference back to Genesis 3.15. God of peace shall bruise, or better, crush. The God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want to look at three things here. Uh, but first of all, I'll ask the question. Here's the first promise of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The first promise of Jesus Christ in the Bible is Genesis 3.15. Even the rabbis before the time of Christ, uh, even the rabbis before the time of Christ uh, interpret this in terms of the coming Messiah. In the Targa, prior to the days of Christ, the rabbis, in interpreting this verse, attributed these statements to the coming Messiah. Now, in post-Christian days, they veered away from that because Christians ostensibly applied this verse to Jesus Christ. So in later Jewish interpretation, they steered clear of um, applying this to Christ although in some Orthodox Jewish writers they still. Christian theologians have always interpreted this as, uh, as uh, referring to Christ. They've called it, as I think I have it in the notes, the Proto-Evangelium, the first promise of Christ in the Bible. Now the question arises, why was the first promise of the Savior addressed to the serpent? Why was the first promise of the Savior addressed to the serpent? Why didn't God give to Adam this promise? Although obviously Adam heard it and knew it because it was on the basis of this promise that Adam gave to his wife the name Eve, which means living or mother of living. On the basis of this promise, despite the pronouncement of judgment in 16, 17, 18, and 19, despite that promise that you will go back to dust God, uh, Adam gave to Eve, Adam gave to his wife. Up until then, she was just Mrs. What's your name? See, <laughs> Mrs. What's your name? But now it's Mrs. Eve. At this point, he gave her a name. He called her Eve. Life-giving or living. And that was a great act of faith. That was the faith response of Adam to Genesis 3.15. But why didn't God give it to Adam? Why did he give it to Satan? Well, the answer is because Redemption, God's plan of salvation, God's total plan of salvation, not only includes redemption from sin, but the rule of God. And the arch enemy of the rule of God is Satan. So when God tells men or mankind, personal beings, men and angels, of the coming Redeemer, he states it to Satan so that he shall know that the rule of God, which will one day be established upon this earth, will be established in the hands of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look at three things here. A sentence, a promise, a philosophy. Three things. In verse 15, verse 15, three things. A sentence, a promise, and a philosophy. A sentence, a promise, and a philosophy. First of all, a sentence. It's a sentence upon, and each one of them, there are three things. It's a sentence upon the devil. And there are three things in that sentence. First one is that there's going to be what kind of warfare? Perennial. I will put enmity between... You and the woman between her seed, your seed. Permanent warfare between the seed. Perennial warfare. Second thing he tells the devil is that it, this is going to be, this enmity is going to be divinely ordained enmity. God has established it, see? You have a hard time getting along with the world. God's established it that way, see? You have a difficult time with the world that's controlled by Satan. You do? Well, God established it that way. I will put 
enmity. God takes the initiative. And the third thing we learn about this sentence is that there'll be ultimate defeat on the part of Satan. Now, I'll come to that in just a minute. Second, here's the proto-evangelium, the plum. Let me, let me expand on number two. The proto, which means first, evangelium means plum. The first promise of Christ in the Bible. First promise of Christ in this Bible. And this is the seed plot of all the other promises. This is the acorn out of which all the oak trees of prophecy grow. Here is the kernel of all Old Testament prophecy. It's the first one. And because it's the first one, the most important one. Now this verse tells us three things about Christ. Now what's the first thing it tells us about Christ? Pardon? He's going to be what? He's going to be the seed of the woman. He's going to be the seed of the woman. Now, what does that mean? Well, that doesn't refer to the virgin birth. The virgin birth is true, but that doesn't refer to the virgin birth. When, when uh, God says that the coming Messiah is going to be the seed of the woman, it means that he's going to be a member of the human race. Member of the human race. Not going to be an angel. He's going to be a member of the human race. Why a member of the human race? Because God has said without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Mission of sins. Now, the word of sins is not there, but it's, it's there by interpretation. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood. God has so ordained it. The old Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, says it. God has so ordained it that the same human nature that fell must be redeemed by human nature. Now, may I repeat that? God has so ordained it that human nature, which has fallen, must be redeemed by human nature. If man has been redeemed, if man has fallen into sin, then he must be redeemed by who? Not an angel, not an animal, not, now you listening, not God unincarnate. If man is to be redeemed, he's fallen, he must be redeemed by man. He must be the seed of a woman. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Now, in order for that death to have infinite value, he must also be God. See, the reason why Jesus Christ is able to save an infinite number of sinners is because he's the God-man. He's both God and man. I'm a man, but if I were a perfect man, I could not save you. And God the Father can't save us uh, because he doesn't have a human nature. He doesn't have a body. He cannot shed blood. May I say it reverently? God the Holy Spirit cannot die for me because he doesn't have a body. He cannot shed blood. The one who dies for me and saves me must be a man. He must be able to shed blood. So Jesus Christ took upon himself a human nature. What does the Bible say? And the word became? Yeah, and that doesn't simply mean this stuff. By the word flesh, it means human nature. The word became, took upon himself a human nature. But if he were just a man, Jesus couldn't save him. His human nature enables him to die for sin. But his divine nature gives that death infinite value. Because he is a man, he is able to die. Because he is God, that death has infinite value. And the one that dies for me is the God hyphen man. And that is why the church for 200, 300 years insisted so strongly in what is called the hypostatic union. The union of two natures in one person. Because unless Jesus is the God man, he cannot save. He must be a man in order to die and to shed blood. But he must also be God in order for that death to have infinite value. And he must be one person so that what he does, what he does in his human nature will have attributed to it the dignity and the value of the divine nature. So the savior of sinners is going to be the seed of the woman. It's going to be a member of the human race. 
Now that's narrowed down. To carry this out a little, Genesis 3.15 is going to be a member of the human race. But there are many races. So in Genesis 9.26, he's going to be a member of the Semitic races, descendant of Shem, come out of the tents of Shem. But out of the Semitic races, there are several ones, several Semitic races. Of which race? Which nation? He's going to be a 12, 1 to 3, of the nation of Israel. Ah, but there are 12 tribes in Israel. Levi, Benjamin, of what tribe? It's going to be the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. But there are many families, many clans. Of what clan? of the clan or the family of David. Second Samuel 7, 14. Born in Bethlehem. Born of a virgin. And so on down the line. Born around the first century, Daniel 9, 26. See, the Bible. But this is the bedrock right here. This is the one where it all starts, Genesis 3, 15. That's why it's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first father. What's the first thing it says about him? He's going to be what? Come on now, what? All right, seed of a woman. That's what the second thing we learn about Jesus. The second thing is he will be apparently, apparently, temporarily defeated. Satan will bruise, crush his heel. Now, a heel is something, you know, you get the heel crush, you can get over it. I've never had a heel crush, and don't plan to, but you can get a heel crush and live. See? The heel, the crushing of the heel is temporary. The Bible here tells us that thou, devil, will crush his or its heel, the heel of the seed of the woman. And that's a figure of speech describing, I think, the, the, uh, uh, the cross of Christ. Where did the devil temporarily, apparently, temporarily, defeat the Lord Jesus. Where? At the cross. The cross. That's the second one. Then the third one, the third great fact that's told us in this verse, is the ultimate victory of the <clears throat> ultimate victory of Christ, the seed of the woman. Seed of woman, I'll just put S-O-W. And the ultimate defeat of Satan. Now, when will that take place? That's Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when he's cast into the lake of fire forever and forever. So, uh, on a spectrum, uh, he, was, um, he was, the promise of his defeat was given right here. The promise was given in Genesis 3. He was sentenced in John 12, 32. Now is the prince of this world judge. He, was, he will be temporarily, temporarily judged in Revelation 20, 1 to 3, when he's cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years, and he will be, and this is a thousand-year millennium right here, he will be ultimately defeated, Revelation 20, verse 10, when he's passed forever and ever into the lake of fire. See? So, here's, um, here's God's thing. Where do the, what are the three great events in the, in, in, in the according to Genesis 3.15, and this gives us some idea of God's philosophy and history, what are the three great important events in human history? Until we come to the eternal state, from the beginning of time, what are the three important events in human history? Can you tell me? Come on now, think. What's the first one? When did Jesus become the seed of the woman? At his birth. We call that the incarnation. Jesus Christ became the seed of the woman at the incarnation. See? What's the second great event? That's when Jesus Christ came to this earth, the incarnation. What's the second great event? The cross. You will crush his heel. The cross. What's the third great event? 
great white throne judgment and the defeat of Satan. See, there are three evil things in this universe. Three evil things. An evil, uh, um, an evil tempter, the one that started it. Uh, an evil man, sinful man, sinful tempter, and a cursed universe. So what we have in, Gen in Revelation 20, and I dare say that 90% of the people who study it never understand the thrust of Revelation 20. What we have in Revelation 20 is God ultimately answers and solves the great problem in the universe, and that's the problem of evil. And how does God solve it in Revelation 20? He solves it by ultimately and finally defeating the tempter, by ultimately defeating sin and, and judging sinful men, and by ultimately purging this present heaven and earth and giving us a new heaven and earth, see? And when God does these three things, he's finished with the old heaven and the earth and the old things, and then begins in the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. And that's the thrust of Revelation chapter 20. Now, may I suggest to you for your study, and I won't get on to the last one, that Genesis chapter 3 gives us the great philosophy of history. And uh, just to... Uh, Providence, warfare, victory. I will make. That is God controls all things. We speak of that as God's providence. Warfare, I'll put warfare between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. An ultimate victory. God is going to uh, gain a victory inside history, which is the hallmark of premillennialism. God is going to gain the victory inside human history in the millennium, and he's going to gain the victory at the end of human history when he defeats all evil forces. Now, let me close by saying this. Warfare, something practical. I will put enemies. You know how the devil carries on his warfare? By two M.O.s, modus operandi. One by murder, and the other by mixture. Murder and mixture. Murder and mixture. So in Genesis chapter 4, he had Abel, the godly seed, murdered. In Genesis chapter 6, he has Mixture. Murder in Genesis 4. Mixture in Genesis chapter 6. You find the same thing in the wilderness. You find the same thing over in the, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. When you come to the history of the early church, for the first 300 years, from 30 A.D. to the, to the signing the Edict of Milan by Constantine, you have murder. And the great persecution fell upon the early church recorded here. Murder. But then Constantine signed the Edict of Milan and, uh, and uh, paid his soldiers to get baptized, uh, gave deferment from the army to the priests, which is the origin of deferment for ministers, for military service, gave tax exemption to the church, and brought in a lot of the pagan elements in the next 100, 150 years, they were brought in a lot of the pagan elements, and what Satan could not accomplish by murder, he accomplished by mixture. Now, how does he operate today? How does he operate in North Korea today? How does he operate in Memphis today? Yeah. So sometimes you can't tell the difference between a saved person and an unsafe person. Their conversation doesn't give us any inkling of difference. Their behavior doesn't give any inkling of difference. It's kind of like the boy that went to the army. About a year later, father came home. The dad said to the boy, he said, son, how'd you get along? He said, I got along tremendous. I got along wonderfully. Nobody ever discovered I was a Christian. <laughs> and uh, and, and some, some people are like that. Mixture, mixture. All right, now we're going to take up at this point uh, next time.
Jim, you can turn that off. 